produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. Welcome to Kind World. I'm Andrea Aswahi. And I'm Yasmin Amr. You know, if you've ever lost a loved one, then you understand how important it is to honor their legacy. This week, I've got a story about a man who's on a mission to honor those who made the ultimate sacrifice for their country. 232 GIs killed and 900 wounded makes one of the heaviest weeks of the Vietnam War. 1965, the first American combat troops land in Vietnam. Two years later, Gary Marquardt was 18 years old. Almost 20,000 American troops had already died in the war. Get them back here if you can. Can you move them? Gary knew he was going to Vietnam. He didn't think he'd live past 25. I could see my own death. I was going to be running with an M16 through a rice paddy and get shot up. Gary is from a poor, working-class family. Mom, dad, six kids, who lived in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. His father was a World War II veteran who worked at the local meatpacking plant. Home life was rough. His father was an alcoholic, and the family sometimes didn't have enough money for heat. As the draft for Vietnam ramped up, young, healthy men with no college deferment, men like Gary, were at the top of the list. Vietnam was just looming there. It was something that I was always afraid of. That, you know, I really didn't need a degree. I needed a, a beer and another football game and a girlfriend. <laughs> that was kind of the mindset that you get into when life seems so very short. Gary wasn't a good student, but he was an athlete. And when he was offered a football scholarship to a two-year college in North Dakota, he accepted, allowing him to defer his deployment until he finished school. By his first year of college, some of Gary's friends had already returned home in coffins. I figured, you know, as soon as I'm out of the school, I'm going to Vietnam, so might as well live life as fast as I can. He married his college girlfriend, Joan, on his graduation day. He was 20. The young couple moved to a small town in South Dakota. Gary got a job as a draftsman, but without a deferment, he knew his days stateside were numbered. Then suddenly his whole life changed. I uh, collapsed at work and uh, woke up in the hospital. I had a bleeding duodenal ulcer. And they gave me some medicine, a diet to watch, and said, you should be good to go. And a couple weeks later, I got a new draft card in the mail that said, you're 4F. 4F, a designation by the U.S. military for people who are deemed ineligible for military service. Gary's ulcer meant he wasn't heading to Vietnam. You know, I said to my wife, my God, I have to plan the rest of my life. Gary was relieved, but unsure of what lay ahead. He went back to work, where his boss, a World War II veteran, resented him. It didn't matter how hard I worked or what I did. To that guy, I was a college puke, and uh, he was a Navy officer. And by God, that was, uh, that was the only way to dignity for him. But even though he hadn't served, he still felt a connection to these young soldiers— he couldn't understand why Vietnam vets didn't get the same reverence and respect that other veterans had received in the past. These feelings about the war stayed with him for decades. And when he retired at 62, he started reflecting on his own past. What have I done for the life I've been able to live? You know, I had two wonderful kids. I had a great life. 
I started my own business. I um, was really successful. It was just the American dream. In retirement, Gary was invited to the funeral of a friend's father, a World War II veteran who served in the Pacific Theater. It was this event that gave him a new mission in life. I was there. They did this great flag folding. And then a guy stood behind a tree with a uh, plastic-looking trumpet that had a recording device in it that squeaked out taps. And I looked at everybody in that congregation, and what was on everyone's face was, oh, no. He and others were put off that a recording of taps marked the final farewell to a veteran instead of a live performance. Gary couldn't stop thinking about it. But then he learned about Bugles Across America, an organization that aims to get a live bugler at every veteran's funeral. Gary was immediately interested, and he wanted to participate. But there was a slight problem. I had never really played an instrument. I tried, but I couldn't read music. It was a total foreign language. He asked a neighbor, who happened to be a band director, if it was possible for someone who has no musical experience to learn to play taps on a bugle. And he said, well, it's hard, but yeah, you can. So Gary bought a bugle and started taking lessons once a week in hopes of learning to play this one song. It was horrible. My wife uh, just about pulled all her hair out. So did her cats. Gary and his teacher broke down the song measure by measure, solidifying each part until he could play the whole thing. He kept practicing until he was ready to audition for Bugles Across America. He failed the first time, but the second time, he passed. Finally, Gary was ready to play at a service. There was a funeral in Waconia, Minnesota. They called me, and uh, I went down there, and um, it was my first time, and so I'm trying to follow all the protocols. So I'm out there. It's cold and windy, and I'm terrified, and uh, just hitting that very first note. You want that to come out nice and clean. So uh, I'm thinking about that and thinking about that and missed my cue. Gary snapped to attention and did play taps. And since then, he hasn't stopped. He's played at funerals all over Minnesota, some near his house, others more than 100 miles away. Sometimes he plays for people he knows, but most times he plays at the funerals of total strangers, like Donna Beaudry's father, a veteran of the Korean War. It, I was so moved that someone would care enough to want to honor my dad and come with no, no expectations, doing it just out of his heart and kindness. He's also played for decorated soldiers like Elvin Speed Holman, a World War II paratrooper and prisoner of war whose regiment was featured in Saving Private Ryan. His daughter, Barbara Rosebrock, says Gary's important role in honoring her father's legacy was unforgettable. He played just like an angel. He gives back to his country in playing taps and honoring the person for their lives that they served. I, I do think that uh, he is a soldier in his own right. I can never put on a uniform. I can't ever be a soldier. Can't save somebody's life on the battlefield. But I can honor those who did. 
Now 70 years old, Gary says he'll continue to play at funerals and memorial services as long as he can. It's his way of saying thank you. We'll have more Kind World after the break. Welcome back to Kind World. I'm Andrea Aswahe. And I'm Yasmin Amr. Andrea, music is a wonderful way to honor people's memories and lift the spirit of those who knew them. I completely agree. And on that note, I want to tell you about another story of kindness that's rooted in music. It's about a choir in Littleton, Massachusetts. They're called the Threshold Singers, and they provide a very special service. They sing at the bedsides of people who are dying. The choir was founded in 2007, and it's one of more than 200 threshold choirs in the world. And what they do isn't just a gift for those who are dying. Charlotte Russell, who's the choir's music director, says it's a comfort to their loved ones, too. It's something to fall back on in those moments when you're with somebody who's very ill or passing, and you've done all the physical things you can do. They aren't eating or drinking anymore. Maybe they're not really hearing or responding to what you say anymore. And it, it gives you a way to be present. Charlotte says it's an intimate and personal way to help everyone in the room feel a sense of tranquility during a really difficult time. So, Andrea, I want to know, how does this work? I want to know what kind of music the choir sings. So the choir will receive a request from someone whose loved one is in end-of-life care. Maybe they're in hospice. They could be in the intensive care unit at the hospital. And the choir will send along a trio to sing for as long as the family wants. It could be 20 minutes, it could be an hour, and choir members learn hundreds of songs so they can sing at bedsides. Most of our music is about peace, calm, lullaby style. The music is almost chant-like. It is sometimes repeated several times, and it has a very calming effect. And Yasmin, when I went to their rehearsal and sat in their circle, I could feel myself relax as the choir sang these soft and gentle songs. Here's one of my favorites from that evening's rehearsal. It's called Rest Easy. Some of their music is definitely aimed toward the family members and friends in the room, like this song, Where Love Abides. When the 
That's very beautiful. So did you get a chance to talk to any family members who've had the threshold singers at their loved one's bedside? Yeah, I did. I spoke with Jay Glazer. He's a doctor here in Boston whose wife, Danielle, died earlier this year. He says he wanted to have the threshold singers at Danielle's bedside because she spent her life studying meditation and music as healing. Dr. Glazer said the experience was overwhelming. The whole group, you know, we were passing around Kleenex boxes the whole time because everybody was reduced to a bag of emotions, I think. And I think it was healing for us as well. It was kind of the beginning of our period of grief as well as a way of letting go. Andrea, I think what makes this whole project just so special is the impact it must have. I mean, this is an act of kindness that the singers know immediately has an effect. Exactly. And music director Charlotte Russell says of all the accolades she's received as a professional vocalist, nothing has been as powerful as her work with the Threshold Singers. This feels like one of the most important things I've ever done because of the level at which it helps. To find out more about the Threshold Singers, visit our website, wbur.org slash kindworld. Next week on Kind World, Lynn Schutzman always had a plan, but she never imagined how much her life would spiral out of her control. I cried all night. I couldn't sleep. I just cried, thinking that, you know, it's like this is divine intervention. God knew that, you know, I was at my lowest point. What happened when someone finally took notice and decided to do something to help? Kind World is a production of WBUR, Boston's NPR station. Paul Vikis and Matt Reed do our sound design. Gabriela Mrazowski is our production assistant. And Iris Adler is our executive producer. I'm reporter and producer Yasmin Amr. And I'm reporter and producer Andrea Aswahe. If you have a story of kindness to share with us, or if you just want to say hi, send us a message on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WBUR Kind World. If you're interested in helping our iLab team produce podcasts, then send us a resume and a little bit about why you want to work with us to ilab underscore internships at wbur.org. That's I-L-A-B underscore internships at wbur.org. You can find out more information about our internship program on our website, wbur.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.